John 1. We're again going to read the first 18 verses of John's Gospel. We're going to be focusing today on the last paragraph of this uh, prologue to John's Gospel, verses 14 to 18. This is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Father, what wonderful good news for us to hear and receive and believe. Would you speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit in that way that only you can? to write this word on our hearts and to draw us to Christ, to truly receive and believe grace upon grace, grace and truth, life and light that are found in him alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. What is the most unexpected and impossible thing that you could think that might happen? Many, many novel writers and movie makers and storytellers have attempted to tell impossible stories that that stagger the mind and challenge the human imagination in many ways to get us to pay attention to something that they're trying to communicate on a deeper level. So whether it's a story of a halfling who finds a golden ring deep inside a mountain that contains within it the fate of the world, or a movie like Inception that blurs the lines between dream and reality and messes with you so that you're not sure what's real or not, or Hollywood's most recent fascination with the multiverse. You know, there's this deep human longing to be surprised by something that's too wonderful to fully accept or understand. And yet, 
the most unexpected and impossible thing that could ever be imagined has actually happened in real life. And most people have completely missed the reality of it. They think it's just a story, or they think maybe it's boring, has no real relevance to their lives. You know, John wrote his gospel last. He wrote his gospel at a time when the news of this impossible event had already been spreading throughout the known world. And was the case then, as is the case today, most people who heard it misunderstood the true significance of it. And so John opens his gospel by telling us in clear and compelling language of how wondrous and important this event is to the history of the world and to our own lives personally. Of course, this unexpected and impossible event is the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. In the Gospels, God gives us three different perspectives on this birth. There are three witnesses. Matthew gives us Joseph's perspective. So we largely experience the coming of Jesus through the eyes of Joseph. Luke gives us Mary's perspective. And so we see things in Luke's gospel that only Mary knew. But now John comes along and he gives us God's perspective. What was God doing in this? Because we might ask, why would the birth of the firstborn baby boy of an insignificant couple in a small town in a relatively obscure corner of the ancient Roman Empire be so wonderfully impossible, unexpected, and important. Important enough to change the whole world and each of our lives forever. Well, John's answer to that question is by telling us that in that birth, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This birth is nothing less than the incarnation of the Word of God, the eternal Word of God, who was with God from the beginning, who is God, the one through whom all things were made, took on a full human nature and was born of a woman. God the Son became a baby boy, and yet did not stop being God. If that's not impossible, I don't know what is. It is mind-blowing. It's also very controversial and very challenging to all ways of looking at the world. The simple phrase, the word became flesh. Logos became sarks. Sarks is a word that was almost vile and offensive in the Greek mindset. Because it's the body. It's, it's the icky stuff, right? We use the word sarcophagus to talk about where you stick dead bodies. So the logos becomes sarks. This, that is very challenging to everyone who would have first heard this gospel from John. Hebrew people with a Jewish background would have known the word... They had reverence for the word. They, they read, they preserved, they copied, they memorized, they recited, they taught the word in their synagogues. 
When we were in Israel in 2017, we got to go to Qumran. And Qumran's a place where they had a, a, a community of scribes who, who lived. Their entire existence was about copying and preserving the Word of God and some other writings. But we have the most reliable manuscripts of the Old Testament because this community at Qumran created what we know today as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Did you know that Jewish people had such reverence for the Word of God that basically every practicing Jew in the days of John would have had all 150 Psalms memorized because they prayed them and sang them all every week of their lives. They had a ritual time where all 150 Psalms were prayed, read, sung every single week. Pharisees memorized the entirety of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And they memorized every one of the 613 laws that were given by God through his word in the Torah. They had a serious reverence for the word of God because they knew what the word of God was. They knew that it was the very breathed out self-disclosure of God himself. And so they had it as their most priceless treasure. Now John is telling them that the word of God, the word which God spoke and brought the universe into being, the word which he gave through Moses and the prophets, the word which is from God and reflects the very mind of God, became flesh, became a specific human being, born in Bethlehem, and then later rejected by the Jewish leadership, crucified under Pontius Pilate, after which he was died, buried, and rose again. And this, to them, was simply absurd. The word of God was a man? The word of God doesn't become a man. And for the secular intellectuals, the universe was ordered by reason, according to this transcendent pattern or design. They didn't really believe in God like we do, like a personal God, but they believed that the universe was structured according to logic and that the Logos was the, the structure and order of the universe. And to them, they're hearing John say that the very logical structure and order of the universe became flesh, like this thing that most Greek people regarded as a prison of the soul and they were trying to get out of so that they could progress on to their eternal purpose. The idea of the Logos becoming flesh was abhorrent and irrational. And so my question to you is, this Christmas season, how has the word became flesh and dwelt among us challenged your thinking? Have you ever really thought about it? Have you let it challenge the way you look at God, the way you look at the world? You know, some of us look at the world and we think, pretty messed up place. There's ugly stuff that happens, vile stuff that happens. You know, if I was God, I would just be done with it all because it's just not worth it. But God said it was worth it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Other people 
might think, hey, we're all pretty good people. God ought to just sort of accept us the way we are, because after all, if he doesn't love us the way we are, does he really love us at all? He ought to just take me the way I am and welcome me into heaven because I'm a good person. But there was a reason why the word had to become flesh in order to bring us grace and truth, because he had to come to die. As we sang in, what child is this? Nails, spears shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. This baby who was born as the word made flesh was born to die because that's what we needed to save us because we are that bad off and that helpless that we need the word to become flesh and dwell among us. John goes further when he says, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Any language about seeing his glory would have immediately reminded God's people of the glory cloud. The time when God's glory was seen was in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night during the Exodus. God led his people through the desert wilderness, through the Red Sea, with a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. That was the visible, manifest glory of God. And then years later, that same glory cloud showed up again when the temple was dedicated under Solomon. But John is saying, we have seen his glory. And it wasn't in a cloud. It was in a man. Now, glory meant something different to the secular mindset, as it really does to our culture today. In the Roman Empire, glory was a big deal. Everybody wanted glory. You could get glory by winning the Olympic Games, by winning a great battle, by serving well in the Senate, or by being successful as a writer, speaker, or playwright. So there was athletic glory, military glory, political glory, and artistic glory. And 2,000 years later, really, the world's not any different, is it? Who do we celebrate in our culture? Who gets the glory in our culture? Oh, the professional athletes who can do better, faster, stronger, amazing things, right? Oh, the military generals who command our troops and who win the battles. They become immortalized. The statesmen, right? the people who have power, the people who make laws, the people who govern, or the people who create artistic things that entertain us, that amaze us by their music or by their movies, right? It's the same thing. This is glory. This is what we, we think that's what matters in the world. We think that the rich, the powerful, the influential, that's what matters. And that was the Roman mindset, too. Well, Jesus had a particular glory that far exceeds the glory of every other human being who has ever lived. And that is, John says, he has the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John's focusing on the uniqueness of who Jesus is and the uniqueness of what he brings into the world and into our lives. And he's telling us that because Jesus is so unique, we ought to pay very careful attention to him.
Jesus has the glory, the greatness, the significance, the weightiness of being the only Son of God. And this sets him apart from all creation. He's got a far greater glory than, than any mere creature could ever have because of who he is. But John says, we have seen his glory, which might lead to an obvious question. When? How? You saw his glory? Well, I would suggest to you that there is an obvious answer to the question that John may even have in mind of when, particularly, he saw his glory. But then there's a bigger answer that John, I think, has come to realize over time. So let's start with the obvious answer. When did John see the manifest glory of the Son of God? Mount, Mount of Transfiguration. Yep, so during his earthly ministry, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, this John, up on a mountain by themselves. And up on that mountain, these three witnesses, Peter, James, and John, they go up on the mountain with Jesus, and they see Jesus transfigured. The gospel writers tell us that his clothes became whiter than any bleach could ever possibly make them. I got some new t-shirts this week. Have you guys had this experience? You open up a pack of brand new t-shirts and you're like, what I've been wearing is not actually white. <laughs> it's not even close to white anymore. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's almost like blinding. You put on this crisp white t-shirt. What? But Jesus shone with a radiance that was brighter than any bleach could ever make any cloth. It's just the gospel writer's way of saying it's beyond what you can know. When, when Paul, Saul of Tarsus, had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, the way it's described there in Acts is that he shone with a brightness that was brighter than the noonday sun. Which, that blows your mind. Imagine the sun coming down, you know, it's blinding, right? And so there's glory. And Moses is there and Elijah is there. Moses shows up as the embodiment of the law. Elijah shows up as the embodiment of the prophets. And so the law and the prophets show up there, and they're there to bear witness that they too are disciples of Jesus. But Peter doesn't get it, because Peter never gets it. That's why I identify with him so much. Peter says, oh, we'll build three tabernacles here, Lord. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Isn't that be great? And so God interrupts and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So what do you end up with? You end up with three witnesses who go up on a mountain, and they get the testimony of three witnesses to who Jesus is, and they see it with their own eyes, and they come back down the mountain, and they're, and they're so shocked that they don't even dare speak of what they've seen until later after he's resurrected. But you know, there was a, a glory that I think Peter, that John is putting in here with full of grace and truth. And that is not just in this moment when, when the curtains were sort of parted and they saw this just enough to overwhelm them, right? Not enough to destroy them, but just enough to overwhelm them, they saw. But when, they, when John realizes that Jesus is the one who is full of grace and truth, 
that he is in himself the one and only son from the Father, he realizes that they always saw his glory in everything that he did, in everything that he said. Which is why toward the end of his gospel he says, Jesus did and said so many things that if we were to write them down, the whole world couldn't contain the books that would be written. So he realizes Jesus is full of grace and truth. And this is what he brings that we so desperately need. Grace and truth are the two things that we most desperately need. Any of you looking forward to getting something for Christmas that you think you really need, maybe kids? The, one, the thing that always comes to mind, I'm not sure if my brother would remember this, but we lived in Germany for a period of time growing up, and I was probably 12 or something like that. And I always remember this one particular Christmas present. Now, this was back in the 1980s, and I desperately needed this voice-controlled robot. Because I was the little brother, and I had plans for how I was going to torment my older siblings with this voice-controlled robot. And I was going to sit in my room and give the robot voice commands, and he was going to, like, surprise people, and, like, he could, like, take things, right? Maybe go into my brother's room and take something of his and get out. And I would be nowhere to be found, because I was all... Open it up out of the box. And, you know, voice control technology in 1986 was not what it is in 2022. So the thing didn't work. <laughs> Forward, it goes backwards. Left, it goes right. Stop, it speeds up. And I'm just like, oh, I don't know what to do with this thing. So it ended up very quickly put away. And I don't think I played with it much at all past Christmas morning. Because I thought I needed this thing. And when it was given to me, I realized it wasn't what I needed. It wasn't what I was hoping it was going to be. Now, we've all had experiences like that in life, right? We've all thought, oh, I just need this thing. And I get this thing, and it's eh, not all it was cracked up to be. Here's what we really need. Grace and truth. Grace is God's undeserved favor and kindness to us. It's for God to be good to us when we know full well that we deserve his wrath. We need that. But we also need God's truth, because God's truth is the standard by which all things and all people are measured. It is what never changes. We could think of grace as the tender heart of God and truth as the firm unchangeableness of God, and we need both of them. Grace without truth is all like a body without bones. It's like, you know, if you had muscles and everything else, you didn't have any bones, what would you be? It'd be a pile of goo on the floor, right? But, but truth without grace is like a walking skeleton. Like, it's got all the structure and the rigidity, but it's not going anywhere either. It's lifeless. So we need grace and truth. We need the structure. We need the firmness. We need the, uh, the reliable, unchangeableness of God. And we also need his tender heart toward us. And in this way, I, I think the best way for me to understand grace and truth is as the New Testament parallel of what we read over and over again in the Psalms throughout the Old Testament of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. God's steadfast love is his tender heart toward his children of mercy and compassion when we deserve the opposite. And his faithfulness is his unchanging commitment to always be who he is and always keep his word. And I love, we need both of those things. 
and God gives them to us all in some measure. One of the things we learn in John's opening prologue here is that everyone, everyone who is alive in the world has received from God through Jesus Christ light and life and grace and truth. We all have. Otherwise, we wouldn't be alive. We wouldn't know anything. We wouldn't be able to do anything. But Jesus comes into the world as the one who is full of grace and truth. The one who in himself so overflows with grace and truth because it's who he is. It comes from his very heart, his very nature. We may receive grace and truth, but Jesus is full of them. And thus he is the source of grace and truth for us. And get this. Get this distinction. Ultimately, the grace and truth that we need from God are not just given to us from Jesus, but they are given to us in Jesus. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that Jesus isn't Santa Claus riding through the sky, throwing out handfuls of grace and truth. What Jesus gives us is himself. And in him is the fullness of grace and truth, the manifest glory of the Father. And so John realized, when I was with Jesus all the time, I was seeing the glory of one who was full of grace and truth, and I was always receiving that from him because it's found in him. Which means what we need this Christmas is Jesus And that's not just a Sunday school answer, kids. It's not just, oh, of course the answer is always Jesus, because the answer always is Jesus. He's the one we need, because he's the one full of grace and truth. And while everyone benefits from God's grace, goodness, and truth given through Jesus Christ, only by coming to him do we get the fullness of grace and truth that are found in him. Now, to strengthen his own testimony of what he has seen, John brings in, verse 15, another John who has borne witness. And this might be confusing if you're not super familiar with the Bible. You've got John who's writing the gospel, and then he's talking about another guy named John. Two different Johns. There's John the gospel writer, and then the other John is John the baptizer, or John the Baptist. But John the Baptist makes him sound like he went to a Baptist church. He's John the baptizer, because he was out in the wilderness baptizing people, right? So... John, the gospel writer, calls in this other witness, John the baptizer. And he says in verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, he's already made reference to this John earlier in the prologue. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John was very clear when people asked him, are you the Messiah? No. But then they would say, well, who are you? And John, later in chapter 1, records John the baptizer's response to this question. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So, So John says, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me, and I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. What does he mean by this? Well, 
in, from a human perspective, if you've read the Gospel of Luke and that Christmas account, which is probably the most famous of all the Christmas accounts, you should know that John was six months older than Jesus. They were cousins. John the baptizer was the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah, Jesus' aunt and uncle. And so he's six months older. Because when the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, you'll be with child, he also told her, your cousin Elizabeth is six months pregnant. So this is what he means by, he came after me. He came after him into the world. He also came after him in ministry. John the baptizer was the forerunner. He began his ministry first. But then he says, he who came after me ranks before me because he was before me. What do you mean, how was he before you if he's after you? That's just confusing. What he's talking about is the eternal pre-existence of the Son of God, that he always was. Before he came into the world, Jesus always was the Son of God. And so John the baptizer is preparing the way of the Lord, the Lord who comes after him but who is before him because he ranks before him. And John's witness is key for a very good reason, and that is that God always gives witnesses to verify what he is doing in the world. In the Torah, in the word of God, it says, let every matter be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So, how many gospel writers talk about the birth of Jesus? Three witnesses. And they give us three different testimonies. The testimony of Joseph, the testimony of Mary, and the testimony of God. How many men went up the mountain of transfiguration? Three witnesses, Peter, James, and John. And who spoke to them? Three witnesses, Moses, Elijah, and God the Father. Later in John's Gospel, in John 5, Jesus himself speaks of three witnesses, including John the baptizer, when he says this in John 5. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things to you so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me, and the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you believe that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. See, the Jewish people might have had all 150 psalms memorized, but they missed the one to whom all 150 psalms were pointing when he came into the world. They had it in their heads, but they didn't have it in their hearts. But Jesus, did you catch it? He names three witnesses. John the Baptist, the works that the Father gives him to do, and then the word that the Father has spoken, the scriptures, the scriptures that say he's going to be born in Bethlehem and Micah, that he's going to shine his light in Galilee of the Gentiles in Isaiah, 
that he's going to be one who suffers rejection cruelly at the hands of men, Isaiah 53. Scriptures testify, written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, clearly telling of his life and ministry. So Jesus, in his own claim about himself, even though he is the word of God made flesh, even though he has the glory of the only son of God, he doesn't say, just take my word for it, trust me, I know who I am. Doesn't say that. And this is really important. Because it's one of the things that distinguishes Christianity from man-made religions that claim to be from God. For example, where would we find proof that Muhammad really heard from God in the cave when he and his brother wrote down the Quran? Just the two of them in the cave by themselves. No one else heard the voice. No one else saw God. And Muslims themselves will tell you that's the only miracle. Muhammad didn't do any miracles. He didn't raise the dead, he didn't feed 5,000, he didn't walk on water, nothing. The only miracle was he heard God speak and his brother wrote it down. Isn't that a miracle? Well, who saw this miracle? Who verifies it? Nobody. Where's the proof of the golden tablets that Joseph Smith claims to have been shown in the woods of upstate New York in 1823, these tablets that supposedly contained the Book of Mormon. Why is it that no one outside of the immediate family ever saw these golden tablets and that as soon as other people wanted to come see them, oh, they disappeared. God took them back. Why is it that when Siddhartha Gautama, at the age of 31, meditated under a tree all night and claims to have received a revelation that made him the Buddha, the enlightened one, nobody else saw or heard or confirmed? No, I'm not trying to put down anybody, but rather I'm trying to put up the distinct difference that God gives us in the scripture. And that he says to us, here is the truth, and here are the witnesses who can verify that truth. Witnesses who saw him, who heard him, who looked upon him, as John says in 1 John, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. We have John's witness we have John the Baptist witness. We have the miracles that Jesus did. We have the scriptures themselves. We have all the eyewitnesses to his resurrection. We have all the eyewitnesses to his miracles. God has given us every reason to accept that the testimony about his son is true. And yet, some people will still say, oh yeah, but they just made it all up. Some other people will say, perhaps you are saying right now, yeah, yeah, I know. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Word of God made flesh. He's the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. I got it. I've heard this all my life. I know this stuff. When can we go home and have some lunch and get on with life? Because I don't really get what any of this really has to do with me and how I'm living my life right now. Well, then you missed something very important. Because John already told us, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. 
And he already told us the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And now he's told us from the fullness, from his fullness, we have all received grace. If you're asking what Jesus has to do with your life, you're missing the point because the truth is that you don't have any life apart from Jesus. The life you have is the life that Jesus gave you, the life that Jesus sustains in you. The light that you have, any truth you understand, any, any goodness you experience is given to you by God through Jesus. But there is a fullness of grace and truth that comes to those who believe. There is grace upon grace. There is favor upon favor. There are benefits upon benefits. There is undeserved goodness and kindness on top of undeserved goodness and kindness. And this is how I think of this. If you're alive, if you've got a pulse, if you're breathing oxygen, your brain is functioning, you are receiving grace from God. You don't deserve it. Did you create yourself? Do you keep yourself alive? Do you pay for that air you're breathing in? You're receiving grace from God continually. But if you come to Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, you receive grace upon grace. You receive saving grace, the fullness of grace and truth, on top of the grace that we all receive every day. It's the grace of salvation. It's the grace of eternal life. It's the grace of knowing God. We come to the last verse of the prologue, and, and John says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus is the Word of God in human flesh. He's the one who's made known, who's revealed, who's unveiled the very heart of God to us. I've given a lot of thought over a lot of years to what might seem to you to be a very obvious question. And that is, of all the things that John could focus on, why does he focus most strongly and most clearly on Jesus as the Word? He begins with the Word, and he emphasizes the Word. Why is it so important? There's books that have been written on this. What is the meaning of the Logos? And what is the significance of this? Sometimes, though, you know what? The simplest answer is the best answer. And here's the simple answer. What does the Word of God do? First and foremost, what does the Word of God do? It reveals God to us. For the reason, for the purpose of bringing God to us and bringing us to God. Well, that's Jesus. Jesus is the one who reveals God to us in order to bring God to us and us to God. Why do we need to be brought to God? Didn't he make us? Doesn't he sustain us? Why do we need to be brought to him? Because our sin has created an alienation in our fellowship with God. Before sin, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, in the cool of the day. They enjoyed intimate fellowship with their creator. And while the creator still makes us and still sustains us, we don't have that fellowship with him because of sin. 
because our selfishness, we're turned in on ourselves. We're bent and broken. We need to be healed and restored. And so Jesus is the word because he reveals God to us in such a way as to bring us to God and bring God to us. He does this by becoming human, by fulfilling all righteousness for us, keeping the law in our place, then dying on the cross for our sin, then rising again from the dead to overthrow death and hell, then ascending into heaven and sitting at the right hand of the Father where he never stops praying for us, and then by coming again to receive us to himself in the perfection of eternal glory. That's why he's the word of God. He's the one who reveals God to us in such a way, and only through him, is God brought to us, and we brought to God. And so, this Christmas, the simplest and clearest way that I can put this is we need to come to Jesus. We need to come to Jesus. I love Christmas. I've always loved Christmas. Our, our mom, growing up, just was Mrs. Christmas. I mean, over the top. And so I grew up with it, you know? I, I can sing every Christmas song ever recorded by Bing Crosby and Dean Martin and Johnny Mathis and Burl Ives and the Carpenters. Sing them all. Know every word. Know them frontwards and backwards and upside down. And if you put on that most popular Christmas song on the radio, I will turn it off. Because... And then go there. I love Christmas. I love cookies. I love everything about it. But you know, it really doesn't mean anything without Jesus. And we can get so caught up in the trappings that we can miss Him. We can receive all sorts of things we want and not receive the one thing we need, which is God. God with us. The Word made flesh. Fullness of grace and truth. So, this Christmas, whether you've never really known Jesus as your Lord and Savior, maybe you've just heard about Him and you've thought about Him, but He's never really been your Lord and Savior, come to Him. Or whether you've known Him for over 50 years, come to Him. Let him bring you to God and bring God to you. That's why he came, and that's what our hearts and our lives most desperately need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, the life and light of God, the fullness of grace and truth are found in him. I pray that all of us, each of us, would come to Jesus this Christmas and would say, you are my Lord and my life. I have no good apart from you. You are the one my soul needs. Be my God and my King forevermore. I pray this in Jesus' name.